Is there a significant relationship between smoking, cardiovascular risk factors, and erectile dysfunction? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. John Spangler, Professor of Family Medicine and Director of Tobacco Intervention Programs in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Spangler, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I think everybody knows what erectile dysfunction is. I'm curious if there's actually a difference between that and impotence, or was impotence just a nasty word that we've kind of replaced? That's a very good question, actually. Obviously, all of us know that erectile dysfunction is the inability to achieve an erection sufficient for sexual intercourse. There are three specific questions that actually define erectile dysfunction. And then based on those questions, you define impotence. The three questions are, how often do you achieve a partial or full erection when sexually stimulated? How often do you have a firm enough erection for penetration? And then how difficult is it for you to achieve an erection? Based on the answers to those three questions, you define erectile dysfunction. Now, impotence is actually has its own definition, which is erectile dysfunction in more than 75% attempts at sexual intercourse. It sounds like we should be screening our patients because most of the time they just come in and say, hey, doc, uh, can I get some samples of uh, Viagra? Well, yeah, we obviously should be doing a little bit better job at looking into erectile dysfunction. Many men, for obvious reasons, feel embarrassed or reluctant to talk to their physicians about sexual dysfunction. I've found in my practice that anytime a young guy comes in for a physical, I'm suspicious that at the end of that physical, they're going to bring up the topic so so that I have enough time with them, I actually bring it up immediately because I say to them, all right, let's pretend we're done here and I'm about to leave the door. I'm about to open the door and leave. What is it you exactly came in for? And then it comes up and we can actually talk about it. That's an excellent approach and I actually have not done that, but I have tried to be open by saying, are there any sexual difficulties you want to discuss? I think being proactive as a physician with your patient is really the key to uncovering sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, or really any health issue that someone might be reluctant to discuss. So how common is it that drug companies want us to think that everybody in the world has this condition? Well, it's actually pretty common. Most studies have shown that most men at some point in their life will experience some degree of erectile dysfunction. The major study that looked into this was the Massachusetts Male Aging Study. It's the most commonly cited, at least. And it found that about 40% of men at age 40 had some degree, greater or lesser, of erectile dysfunction. And this percentage actually increased with age. It also increased with other risk factors, such as hypertension, diabetes, etc., Interestingly, also, there were declines in sexual interest, declines in nocturnal erectile frequency, declines in desire and orgasm as men aged. But the one amazing thing is that still men in their older ages enjoy sexual relations with their partners. And so this is something we should really try to help our patients with because it is an important part of life. Can we make up a rule, maybe a 10% rule, that for every... For every decade, let's say 40, you said 40% at 40, is it 50% at 50, can we assume 60% at 60, and so on and so on? Well, the data really weren't analyzed in that way. It was shown that with each successive decade, there was an increased risk. I'm not exactly sure of the percentages by decade, 
but there is an increased risk with each increasing decade. So you can assume that 40% is going to be the low number. Now, what else should we be asking them? I mean, besides, are you waking up with an erection? I think it's important to ask them if they have any problems when they're masturbating, because if they're having no problems masturbating, but it's only with a partner, then obviously it's more psychological. That's true. And that would be a good question to ask someone. Probably not the first question right off the bat. But at the same time, I think you've got a very good point. I think you should ask patients are you having trouble with erection function? I think just a very open-ended question like that, instead of saying how frequent, how difficult, I think an open-ended question allows the patient to share what is going on in their life without feeling embarrassed. What are some of the common risk factors that we should always be kind of thinking about asking it with? Is it just smokers? Is it just people with high blood pressure? What, what kind of other things should we be thinking about? Well, if you can think about any disease that affects the vascular endothelium, you've pretty much covered the waterfront. That includes things like diabetes, coronary artery disease, atherosclerosis, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, because it's actually the vascular endothelium that's responsible for the chemical reactions that occur for erectile dysfunction. But there are other things, certain drugs, like the alpha-5 reductase inhibitors that are used in management of benign prostatic hyperplasia, for example. Antihypertensive medications are commonly involved in causing erectile dysfunction. And hormonal deficiencies. Obviously, a man who has low testosterone levels is going to have less libido, and testosterone itself is important for the physiology of erectile function. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm talking to Dr. John Spangler, professor of family medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Spangler, I know you did a study about erectile dysfunction and smoking in men with high blood pressure. Tell me a little bit about that. This is a study that actually got quite a bit of attention internationally, in fact. I studied 126 men who had hypertension. 52 of those men were current smokers, and I forget the exact number that were former smokers, but the rest of the men were non-smokers. And I was able to compare the current smokers to the former smokers and to the non-smokers, and it turned out that current smoking men who have hypertension were 26 times more likely to experience erectile dysfunction than non-smokers. And former smokers, when you compared them to non-smokers, they were 11 times more likely to experience erectile dysfunction. So this was actually quite a huge number, and it was a good number to be able to present to patients about the impact that smoking can have in addition to high blood pressure. Yeah, I think those numbers on a cigarette package might scare a young male more so than heart disease and cancer. Yeah, I think, you know, caution, cigarette smoking is hazardous to your sexual function might might actually grab some attention. So with the non-smokers, obviously they're no longer smoking, but they were still having erectile dysfunction. So, so how much of it can be reversed? Well, erectile dysfunction can be reversed to a certain extent because we know when smokers quit, their erectile function improves. Erectile dysfunction can also be improved or reversed to a certain extent with controlling of risk factors. Also, if you have peripheral arterial disease and have bypass grafting that improves pelvic blood flow, you're going to improve erectile dysfunction. Sort of the, the rule of thumb is we probably will never eliminate erectile dysfunction once it's established, but we will be able to improve it. 
by concentration on risk factors, but also the drugs like sildenafil or Viagra really do help as well. You mentioned earlier that 40% of 40-year-olds will have had some sort of erectile problems. Let's take one of these 40-year-olds and say he comes into the office and you do a, a hormonal workup and you talk to him and and everything checks out fine. He's not diabetic. His testosterone's fine. His thyroid's fine. Prolactin levels are fine. And how aggressive should you be in looking for occult coronary artery disease? And let's say you are suspecting that and you do a stress test and he passes, you still have not ruled out coronary artery disease. Well, that's a very good question. In fact, there are experts in the field that say that if you have a man who has erectile dysfunction, you should think cardiac disease because it turns out that about 10% of men who present to the clinic with erectile dysfunction will have coronary artery disease. Well, is that just because they're both pretty common or not? There does seem to be a relationship between erectile dysfunction and development of coronary artery disease. And I would always keep that in mind, and I think I would especially keep that in mind in patients who have other cardiac risk factors, because erectile dysfunction is basically a signal of vascular disease. It's kind of like, you know, as you look into the eyes, it's the window of the soul, and this is a presenting symptom that can kind of tell you that you've got some nice plugged up arterioles. That's right. It's the window of the sexual soul, so to speak, window of the vascular soul. You can definitely use this as a springboard to start thinking about cardiac risk factors. You know, in a man at age 40, if you start working on those cardiac risk factors, you can have a huge impact on their longevity and quality of life to say nothing of their erectile dysfunction. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. We have a few choices, Viagra, Levitra, Cialis. I know that they were, or one of them was discovered as, a, as an antihypertensive. That's correct. In fact, these drugs actually have vasodilatory effect. Which would account for their side effects. And, and I think the way they discovered this, correct me if I'm wrong, is during the studies, the men did not give their pills back at the end of the study because they liked the side effects. I don't know the exact history of that, but that certainly would be one outcome that I can imagine would happen in those studies. But each of these drugs is actually fairly specific for blocking one specific enzyme, and that's phosphodiesterase 5 there's a bunch of phosphodiesterases throughout our body. They're responsible for breaking down cyclic AMP or cyclic GMP. And phosphodiesterase 5 actually breaks down cyclic GMP in the genital region. If you block phosphodiesterase 5, you allow cyclic GMP levels to increase. And increased cyclic GMP levels allow the generation of nitric oxide. And it's actually nitric oxide that's the active species causing vasodilatation in the genital region and causing blood flow into the corpus cavernosum of the penis. It makes me think of nitrates, because what, what about just applying topical nitrates to increase uh, nitrous oxide? I've never actually looked into that, but nitrates would have a similar effect to nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. They would be, though, both uh, arterial and vasodilatory, you want to be a little more selective in that, increase uh, arterial inflow and decrease venous outflow. So the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors are a little bit better for that. Viagra's been around for a while, so what do we know about long-term cardiovascular effects, either positive or negative? Well, we know that actually it's safe. We know it's safe in men who have coronary artery disease, unless they're obviously taking nitrates like nitroglycerin. 
We're not quite sure exactly what it will do uh, long-term for coronary artery disease patients. Certainly, it improves nitric oxide levels, which should improve microvascular flow within the heart. However, again, phosphodiesterase 5 is pretty specific for the genital region. We are finding incredibly more and more uses for Viagra, anything from pulmonary hypertension to other vascular diseases. So it's actually quite exciting. This, this field has just exploded in terms of research. Dr. John Spangler, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show and talking to us about smoking and cardiovascular disease and its association with erectile dysfunction. Thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Larry Casco, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.